The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So let's go ahead now and turn to God's Word. Uh, it is the Christmas season. This is the Sunday before Christmas, so for us as Christians, this is one of the greatest weeks and Sundays of the year where we really get to think about, meditate on, and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, primarily who He is, who He is historically, but also He's the same today as He was historically and forever. That's what Scripture says. And um, So what is what is the Lord Jesus to us, that, that those that know Him? And that's a, a wonderful truth to celebrate at Christmas. And yet we know that in our culture and around the world, many people are quite confused about Jesus. Many have heard about Him. Uh, maybe they've heard stories and legends about Him. Maybe, maybe they know the cultural Jesus. Uh, not many folks actually know the actual biblical account of all that Jesus is about, including his birth, as there's much confusion about the birth of Christ as it's shrouded and smothered in legend and myth and what's biblical, what's not. And so one thing I wanted to do was just uh, go to the actual records from God himself, especially in Matthew early on in his gospel and Luke, where it actually gives God's version, God's inspired, authoritative, historical, inerrant, binding, real version of what actually happened at the time of the birth of Christ, and it reveals to us who Jesus is. That's one of the most important things. Who is he? And why did he come? And so the sermon today I just called Glory to God in the Highest, announcing the birth of the God-man. And Jesus was born as a Jew. He came to the Jewish people. He came in fulfillment of Jewish scriptures. He came to the capital city of the Jews and the nation of the Jews, Israel. So Jesus was a Jew. And ever since God gave the Jewish law to Moses in 1400 B.C., with their constitution, their national constitution, and all of their laws... A priority for the Jewish people was to establish truth. There needed to be a testimony of two or three witnesses. And that became a part of their legal system and jurisprudence in Judaism. In the courtroom, legally and formally, the truth was uh, testified by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Things couldn't just be spontaneously made up out of in isolation. And so... An amazing truth in light of that Jewish context is Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Luke chapter 1 and 2, and several other scriptures in the Bible tell us what happened at the time of the birth of Christ with an amazing number of witnesses, not just two or three witnesses who were their eyewitnesses who saw what went on at the time of Christ, more than two witnesses. I have nine points down there on my sermon, which refers to actually nine people or nine persons or nine beings who were there at the time of Christ's birth, who witnessed it, and also along with witnessing it, they understood or it was revealed to them who Jesus was. And they have different testimonies to give. Yet the amazing thing is they don't contradict each other. Many people will, the critics will look, oh yeah, look at you've got Matthew contradicting Luke. They don't say the same thing about the birth of Christ. There is not one contradiction between Matthew and Luke. They perfectly complement one another. So even these nine testimonies that we're going to look at today of people who were around at the time of the birth of Christ, although there are different emphases and perspectives, 
There's not one contradiction. As a matter of fact, there is just perfect unity and harmony like this beautiful chorus being sung about the glorious Lord Jesus Christ who invaded our world as Savior for sinners. Absolutely fantastic. And so the testimony of two or three witnesses clearly validating from Scripture. Jesus was a historical being. He is what Scripture said. The evidence is categorically clear and abundant for anyone that with integrity is willing to look at the evidence. It's a historical truth. There's actually a growing trend, I don't know if you're aware of it, among scholars who are having meetings and committees and writing books and papers and they're trying to have their movement grow. And their goal is to show that from history, Jesus never existed. That's what they're trying to prove. Jesus wasn't even a historical person. Uh, That flies in the face of everything that Scripture and history actually has to say. And so let's go ahead and look at that, this glorious Jesus, who he is, what he did, and the testimony of those that God used to make that message clear. So uh, if you'll follow me, you might want to flip through Matthew and Luke as we're going there, or just listen carefully to some of the key verses that I'll be referring to. Who was this Jesus? Uh, I would use my own personal story and testimony as an example where I heard about Christmas, I liked Christmas, loved Christmas, it was my favorite holiday growing up, and I didn't know who Jesus was. I wasn't a Christian, uh, really didn't know what that meant, but I had heard stories about who Jesus is and his birth. Some were out of the Bible, some weren't, some were fictitious. Uh, the main thing I liked about Christmas was all the cool presents and the 17 days off I had from school. Uh, it, so it wasn't focused on Jesus Christ and who he was. So the 19 years that I grew up celebrating Christmas was celebrating Christmas in ignorance, not knowing who Jesus is. And then I became a Christian and immediately read the scriptures, especially the gospels, and uh, the scales fell off of my eyes. The ignorance was uh, put away, and I came to realize who Jesus was actually. I'd missed 19 years of knowing who the true Jesus was and what Christmas was all about. What a glorious truth. Let's go ahead and Look at that, because I don't want anybody here to miss the meaning of Christmas, who Jesus truly is. Let's go ahead and start in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to go through nine testimonies given about who Jesus is, and they all uh, fill out the picture, kind of like a fine diamond with its many facets, because when you're talking about Jesus Christ, you're talking about someone who is incredibly complex and uh, has many attributes, and we can't neglect any of his attributes, but they all perfectly complement and blend together, uh, making us understand who Jesus truly is. And so uh, regarding the birth of Christ, starting at Luke chapter 1, let's go ahead and look there. And the first testimony that I want to share is given by a person, but not a human being, and his name is Gabriel. So that's number one. Angel Gabriel announced baby Jesus was the eternal king in Luke one thirty-two and one thirty-three. And let's go ahead and look uh, at Gabriel's Appearance. They're starting at verse 26, actually, in Luke chapter 1. Now, in the sixth month, the angel gave her the sixth month of what? The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. John the Baptist was in her tummy. So John the Baptist was about six months ahead of Jesus. Now, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, the Bible doesn't always name angels when they're sent from God, but every once in a while it actually tells us which angel was sent. There's a passage in the Old Testament where an angel came and his name was Michael, the archangel, and here uh, Gabriel is named and Gabriel has to do... His name comes from the fact that he dwells in the presence of God. And so that's 
amazing that Gabriel is one of those privileged angels that gets to continually reside just before the very presence of Almighty God in a unique way. And he's also a very special messenger of Yahweh God. And God commissions Gabriel on this uh, journey to give a message to a special young lady. And that's in verse 26. Uh, God sends Gabriel to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So Mary, uh, we think, based on passages of Scripture, that Mary was a virgin and she was a young Jewish woman at this time, maybe in her teens or late teens. We don't know exactly, but she was definitely uh, a younger woman, but of marrying age in their culture. And so, and she is a virgin. She is pure. She's never known a man. Not only that, she knows God, loves God, and was an honorable woman. Uh, Mary was not sinless. She wasn't born sinless. She was a sinner like everybody else. At conception, she inherited a sin nature. She knew she was a sinner. We know that later on in the chapter when she calls God her Savior. She knew she needed a Savior. So it's very important that we have biblical truth when we think about the characters that God uses in the story of Christ's birth. So here is Mary, just a normal Jewish woman, a sinner yet saved by grace, who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, She was engaged to Joseph, probably a young man as well, maybe in his late teens, early 20s. We don't know. But they were engaged. They were pure. They honored one another. They honored the Old Testament. They were preserving and saving themselves for marriage. Yet they are engaged at the time when Gabriel comes. And Gabriel came, verse 28, and he came in to Mary and he said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Greetings, favored one. That doesn't mean that she was sinless. It's that, Mary, you are blessed. You are privileged. You have an angel from God's presence coming to give you an amazing message. That's why she was favored. Uh, Gabriel didn't come to Mary because she was better than anybody else on planet Earth at the time. She's just a normal Jewish girl, although she did love God and had true faith. And God blessed her, and he appeared to her through this messenger, Gabriel the angel. And so he says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And so the angel Gabriel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, because she was no doubt startled when this angel pops out of nowhere, probably in her room when she's by herself. Angels have a way of doing that, is appearing when you're all by yourself. Totally unexpected, and that's what Gabriel did. So he said, don't be afraid, trying to put her at ease, for you have found favor with God, not because of who she was, but because of the announcement he was about to give of the one who she would be privileged to give birth to, Jesus the Savior. And he says, here's why you're going to be favored, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And we know from Matthew chapter 1, that the name Jesus means something very specific. It means God saves. God is Savior. God will save His people. And this one named Jesus, He will do that very thing. He will be a Savior who will save His people. And you will give birth to Him. You're going to conceive in your womb. Verse 32, And He will be great. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And there's just all these attributes about this child, this unique child. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob or Israel forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? So I wanted to highlight there Gabriel's message. He said many things about who Jesus the Savior would be, 
Uh, but one of the unique ones in verse 32 and 33 is that he says, this child that will be born of you will be an eternal king. He will be a king. 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. David was the greatest king of Israel. He was the second king of Israel. God promised David that the greatest king of all would come through his loins and reign on his throne. And indeed, it would be the Messiah and it wouldn't be a temporary person or a temporary kingdom, but it would culminate with the Messiah. By the way, the word Messiah means king or the anointed one. And that's what Jesus was. He was the anointed one coming out of the loins of David who would be the greatest king, the everlasting king, the eternal king with the right to rule coming from the loins of David. And he will, verse 33, reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will be an eternal king, an everlasting king whose kingdom will never be undone. That is the great promise. Jesus will be eternal king. That's what makes Jesus stand out from anybody else born in the history of the world. Just look pass through the corridors of history and it's readily apparent that kings and monarchs and even tyrants and dictators, they come and they go. And they're like a vapor. They're like grass that withers and fades away rather quickly in light of history. All the great kings of history are no more. Even today, the rulers of the world, they will last just a short period of time. But not this king because Gabriel promises that he will be an eternal king, and that is true of Jesus. And some people might say, really, Jesus is king? I don't, I don't see him. Where is he? I don't see him reigning on the earth. Where, where is he? I see other people reigning on the earth. It's a fair question, but the Bible gives a very specific answer. Jesus said to Pilate just before he was crucified, he said, he affirmed that he was king. And he said, and my kingdom is not of this world. What do you mean by that? Not of this passing world, of this fading world, of this temporary world. I am a king, but I'm not a king of this world. And he meant he was the king of the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is up here overseas and is above this temporary earthly world. The king who reigns up here is greater than any king who lives down here. The king up here is actually rules over all the little temporary kings down on the earth. So he's actually a greater king by virtue of the fact that the Lord Jesus rules eternally in the spiritual realm right now because everything in the spiritual realm dictates what happens down on this temporary earth. So there's no earth earthly king who could even compare to the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. So is Jesus king? Yes, he is. Where is he reigning? Right now, his throne is in heaven. He is fully aware, get this, he's fully in charge of all that goes on in heaven and even what goes on down on earth. And some might look around and say, really, somebody's in charge of what's going on here on earth? It seems to be absolutely, utterly chaotic. Well, it's not. Everything is going according to God's plan. He's absolutely sovereign and the Lord Jesus is the one who reigns on high, asking everything's going according to his plan. And someday he will bring his eternal spiritual realm as king down literally onto the earth. And it will be manifest for all to see. And all the prophecies of the Bible will be fulfilled and culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why Jesus said when he told his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. Jesus is reigning as sovereign king in heaven right now. And he will not be thwarted. And his, he told us to pray, God, bring that 
unmitigated, unthwarted rain down on earth where it can be literally manifest. That prayer is going to be answered, and Scripture tells us when. It's an amazing truth. That's who we worship and know at Christmas if we know Jesus personally. He is the eternal King. Thank you for that revelation, Gabriel. Let's go on to witness number two, and that's Elizabeth. Elizabeth announced that baby Jesus was the Lord. Elizabeth was married to Zacharias. Zacharias was a priest. Zacharias and, or Zechariah, says another translation, uh, Zechariah, Zacharias, and Elizabeth, they were married for many years. They were advanced in age. Could be they were in their 50s, 60s, 70s. We don't know at the time. As Jewish couple, they wanted a child. They went their whole life without a child. She was barren, probably brokenhearted as a result. Yet God comes in grace to her and announces through her husband that God is going to bless her. She's going to become pregnant even in her old age, just like Sarah did in the Old Testament. It's a miracle of God. The child that she would conceive would become known as John the Baptist. He would prepare the way specifically of Jesus, the Messiah. Elizabeth uh, becomes pregnant. She hears this truth from her husband. She's rejoicing. Uh, the angel says to name him John, her child. And then Elizabeth doesn't get to say a whole lot. It's not recorded in Scripture, but she says a few things, and they are absolutely poignant and powerful, incredibly insightful, and she even comments on the nature of Jesus. So let's look at that in Luke 1, 43. Uh, Elizabeth greets Mary when Mary came to visit entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. They were relatives. Verse 41 of Luke 1, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting and the baby leaped in her womb. So here's Elizabeth. She's six months pregnant. She sees Mary and she had heard by way of revelation that Mary has also going to conceive and that the Messiah would be born through Mary. And here's Elizabeth, six months pregnant with the one who would prepare the way of the Messiah. And so she greets Mary. She's excited. This is a relative. She heard the news. And when they had their greeting, amazingly, verse 41 says, the baby leaped in her womb. John the Baptist in the womb leaped for joy inside his mommy's womb upon greeting Mary. How is that possible? I don't know. But it happened. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit at this moment. In other words, she was going to be used by God as a vessel to speak revelation. Verse 42, and uh, she cried out with a loud voice, uh, Elizabeth did, to Mary. And she said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. God has blessed you, and what amazing privilege. And God blessed the fruit of your womb, this child that's going to be born. Well, who is this child? And here's the amazing statement Elizabeth makes. With the cryptic information that she had that came from God by way of revelation, and Elizabeth is ahead of everybody else in the church that is yet to come. She's ahead of all the Pharisees and the religious leaders of her day because before Jesus is even born, Elizabeth knows exactly who Jesus will be. He is the Old Testament Messiah. And she says in verse 43, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That is amazing. Elizabeth knew that Jesus, who was just conceived in Mary, was not just a man, not just the Messiah, but also the Lord. That is very specific. Kurios is the Greek word. And in this entire narrative, the word kurios is reserved for Yahweh. It is reserved for God Almighty. And as a Jew, that is how Elizabeth knew it. And that's how she thought about the Scriptures. And she is calling the baby of Mary Lord. 
And that could only mean one thing, that Elizabeth knew this Messiah was more than a man. He would be the God-man. He would be Yahweh incarnate. He would be coming in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Her husband was a priest. They knew the Torah. They knew the whole Old Testament. And the Old Testament is replete with prophecies regarding the nature of the Messiah. Yes, he would be Savior. Yes, he would be King. Yes, he would be a person. But at the same time, he would also be God, deity in a human body. And Elizabeth knew that. And she saw the fulfillment in her very eyes in the womb of Mary. And that's why she makes this amazing declaration. He is Lord. It could very well be that Elizabeth and Zechariah, because they were so old, died before Jesus began his public ministry. They didn't get to see Jesus. For 30 years, they probably were waiting and waiting. When is John? John's 13 now. John, can you go out and announce the Messiah is coming? No, John the Baptist couldn't do that at age 13. He didn't do that till he was about 30. could very well be that Elizabeth and her husband never got to see Jesus in his public ministry as the Messiah. But she knew long ahead of everybody else. He is the Lord. And even what a contrast between her and the religious leaders of Jesus' day when they had seen miracle after miracle after miracle and his amazing teaching and his sinlessness and the authority with which he... He taught the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders of the Jewish religion. Didn't conclude, like Elizabeth did, that Jesus is Lord. They concluded that he was a farce and a phony and deserved death, and they rejected him. Absolute irony. So what a revelation that comes from Elizabeth, that announced, one of the first to announce that Jesus is Lord. God in the flesh. Number three, another witness was Mary herself, the mother of of the man Jesus. Mary announced that baby Jesus was the judge and the son of God. Luke 1, 35, 46 through 56. So Gabriel, we saw how he announced to Mary that she would give birth to a special child, the son of God, among other things. And then uh, verse 35 is key because the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy child, sinless child, shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God is a very specific phrase that would resonate with Mary from the Old Testament Scriptures. Not that just he's a male child. The Son of God meant that he would have the very same nature as Almighty God. That's what it meant. That's why he is unique. He is the Son of God. That phrase is used in the Old Testament to refer to this unique Messiah. And the Gospel of John, all 21 chapters, is written to explicate and explain Jesus as Son of God, which meant He had the same nature, essence, and being as God the Father Himself. Jesus was God. This is a declaration of deity. Jesus is God. Verse 35. And Mary accepted this truth. In verse 38, she confirmed it. She said, may it be done according to your word, angel Gabriel. No doubt she pondered that in her heart and may have conversed with people at times, explaining this amazing revelation about who Jesus was. He is the Son of God. She's trying to wrap her mind around that. And then she just has this exaltation of praise to God in verse 46. And listen to Mary's prayer of thanksgiving to God, who is going to bring the Messiah through her womb. Verse 46, she says, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She knew she was a sinner. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave, and behold, for this time all generations count me blessed. But in verse 52 and 53, actually 51, she says, 
God has done mighty deeds with his arm, and he has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts. This is strange because she refers to her God as a judgeful God, a wrathful God, a God who brings vengeance against the wicked and the evil and the enemies of God. You don't think of sweet little teenager, innocent Mary praying that way. But she knew the true God. She knew this was an Old Testament prayer. This came right out of the way Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She knew all the attributes of God. You can't just accept God for being a God of love. He was also the judge. He was holy. He was to be revered accordingly. And she was looking forward to God's vengeance and justice and righteousness being meted out through the Messiah that was in her loins. And so she gives God thanks for that, and she goes on with this theme of judgment. Verse 52, God has brought down the rulers from their thrones. All these big shot historical kings, they don't last. There's only one king of kings. There's only one Lord of lords. It's the Messiah. He's exalted. Verse 53, and he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich, empty-handed. All three of those verses emphasize that, yes, God is loving, God is gracious and merciful, and at the same time, he is also holy, and the only judge of every soul. And that's the message that Mary contributes to who this Jesus is. He's eternal king. He is Lord. He is judge, and he's the son of God. Number four, Joseph gives testimony. Joseph was engaged to Mary. This is in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph was indeed a carpenter. He was also a righteous man and a man of faith and a Jew. He was engaged to Mary. They were supposed to stay pure during the engagement period. He found out that Mary was pregnant. People panicked. That means she committed adultery. He's going to put her away. End the marriage. God intervenes, sends an angel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace, Mary planned to send her away. Cut off the engagement. No marriage. Put her away. And move on. But when Joseph had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's not from some other man. He's not an illegitimate child. What is conceived in her is from God himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. It was supernatural. It was a miracle, inexplicable, never been done, never to be repeated again. This had to be bewildering to Joseph to hear this. The angel goes on, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah 800 years before. When Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 7:14, Behold, the virgin, the virgin, a woman who hasn't had relations with a man. That's what the word means in Greek and in Hebrew. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. The virgin shall conceive apart from a human father. How is that possible? That is impossible. So God had to do a miracle. It's called the virgin birth. This is one of the things that makes Jesus absolutely unique. He was born of a virgin. He had no biological human father. Not only is he Jesus' Savior, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is literally going to dwell in your presence in the person of Jesus because he's 100% man and 100% God. Hence, his title or his very essence will be Emmanuel, God with us, supernatural being from heaven. 
Joseph could have thought it was just a delusional bad dream. But he woke up from his sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He was a righteous man and a man of faith. It took supernatural faith to believe that message, and he did. So Joseph tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin, which has huge implications. Witness number five, going back to Luke, is Zacharias. Zacharias was that priest married to Elizabeth, the father of John the Baptist. He, had, he couldn't believe that his wife was going to be pregnant in old age. He actually doubted. Unlike Joseph didn't doubt, Zacharias initially doubted the angel. And so God punished Zacharias. And so because you doubted and didn't believe initially, God is going to shut your mouth and bind your tongue, and you will not be able to speak until God says so. And so for a while, Zacharias couldn't talk. Had to do sign language and write things down to communicate. But eventually he did believe. And in Luke He says a prayer. Look at 67 to 80. Here's his amazing statement as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. It says verse 67. So this is divine revelation. This is what God wanted to communicate through the sinful, doubting, fallen, finite, yet righteous Zacharias. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And all throughout his prayer and prophecy, there's one thing that Zechariah has, and it is that God is a rescuing God, a merciful God, a saving God. And that's his one thing. He doesn't really talk about God's wrath and judgment like Mary did. He's focusing on the role of Jesus as Savior, merciful, gracious, rescuer of those who need help. As a result, he tells us Jesus is the Redeemer of Israel. He's going to fulfill all the promises that he made to the nation of Israel. And he did, and he will. Let's go on to number six. Uh, the shepherds have a testimony about who Jesus was at the time of his birth. And that's Luke 2.20. At the time of Christ's birth in the same region, there were some shepherds. Now, shepherds are very much in contrast to Zechariah, the high, the priest. The priest was a privileged position. Shepherds, ah, that wasn't really privileged. They were kind of the lowly on the cultural scale of people and jobs. But priests were privileged, highly educated, privileged information. Zechariah is a priest even got divine revelation. And that that happened in the Old Testament with priests. They got divine revelation from God. Incredibly unique position. And yet, God doesn't just come to the priest who is privileged. He comes to the lowly, normal people like the shepherds out in the fields. And He does this day. He does it through an angel. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before the shepherds. They were frightened, as you can imagine. And And the angel said to them, verse 10, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Notice, the message of Jesus is for all the people. Not just Jews, not just the privileged, not just males, for all the people. Just got a message to a young teenage girl. And another message to an elderly Jewish woman who was barren. And a message to a privileged priest about the coming Messiah. And now the same message of the great Messiah coming to these people, the shepherds, who many people would consider not worthy. But it's a message for all the people. And it's a message of good news, a message of great joy. What is that? Well, today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the message in a nutshell. Who is Jesus? He is Savior. That speaks of his main role. What will he do? He will come to save people, and it's spiritually. He will save them from their sin. That's what he came to do. That is the message we preach. Jesus makes a priority and emphasis 
on the soul of human beings. Their status before God. Where they are spiritually. What their eternal destiny will be. And that's what it means that he is Savior. Jesus' role when he came. He came to save sinners from their sin. The message from the angels is also, yes, he came to save spiritually, but also he came as Messiah, as Christ. That emphasizes who he is as a man. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is always a human being. It's always a male. It's always a Jewish man that is prophesied from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Malachi. Hundreds of passages referring to this coming Messiah, this coming man, this literal king, this human being, this great ruler after the likeness of David and all the great Jews and the prophets like Moses. So he will be a man. So Messiah in many ways emphasizes that he will indeed be a man who will be able to identify with us in our humanity, in our weakness. That's the point. He had to be our perfect representative. So he is the anointed one. He is the Christ. And then finally, so he's Savior. That's his job. He's Christ. He's the man who fulfills all prophecy. And he is Lord. Again, he is deity. Just like uh, Elizabeth referred to Jesus as Lord, so also the shepherds get this divine revelation that Jesus, this new baby, is Lord. He is God. He is Kurios. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He's distinct from anyone else ever born. They heard this message, they got over their fear, they became excited, they were hooting and hollering and celebrating, they ran, it says they hurried and found their way to find Mary and Joseph looking for the sign that he was in a manger, that he was in cloths all wrapped up and they found him as God led them in verse 17, when they had seen Mary, Joseph, baby, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. They repeated the message from the angel, this is the child, this is your baby, did you know that he's going to be Savior, Christ and Lord? I would have loved to see that conversation and their celebration. In verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying, praising God for all that they had heard and seen. What a Christmas present. Incredibly privileged. So thank you to the shepherds. We learn that Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. And then number seven, Simeon. Who is this guy? Well, he's a part of the Christmas story. Some people know the three names of the three kings that didn't exist from the east. Malchazor and whatever. Anyway, I don't know where those names come from. Uh, there were definitely magi that came, but we don't know that it was three kings with those names. But this guy is really legitimate, historical in the Bible, and he was there at the time of Christ's birth. And his name is Simeon. Number seven, Simeon announced that baby Jesus was the suffering servant and light to the Gentiles. Simeon brings a unique message to who Jesus would be at the, the birth of Christ in terms of the account and all this other revelation that's being given. Here Mary is thankful. She's told all these amazing attributes about Christ and then she's praying about uh, judgment from God. And then uh, Zacharias, he's just a nice guy just talking about how Jesus is, or the Messiah is going to be Savior, Savior, Savior. And yet Simeon is the only one who gives this very specific message that yes, the Messiah is born and he's a suffering servant. A suffering servant. And very important, a light to the Gentiles. Remember I read that in Luke earlier where it said uh, good news and joy for all the people? Literally all the people. Not just all the people I mentioned. All those people were Jews. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, not just the Jews, but even the Gentiles. I would say that just about everybody in here is a Gentile. And those of you who have come to know Jesus Christ and been saved by Him are a fulfillment of this declaration that Simeon announces. So let's look at it. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. 
Verse 26, and it came, it had been revealed to Simeon, to him by the Holy Spirit. Apparently he was an older man, an older, faithful Jewish man, studying the scriptures, knowing the Pentateuch, knowing the law, reading about the Messiah, praying for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. Is the Messiah ever going to come before I die? God says, yes, you will be unique, Simeon, in the privileged information I'm going to give you also what you're going to see. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that Simeon would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple. He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, was used as a messenger of God. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, Mary and Joseph, to carry out for him the custom of the Mosaic Law, then Simeon took baby Jesus into his arms and he blessed God. And he said through the power of the Holy Spirit, the following, verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. I can die now, Lord. I get to see the Messiah just like you promised before my death. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Verse 32, this is key. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is not just a Savior of Israel. He is the Savior of the world, even to Gentiles who are far off. They will also get to be his people through belief in the gospel. Thank God for that. And the glory of your people. See, he's the savior of the Gentiles and Israel. He is the savior of the world. That's why the culmination of the story of the woman at the well in John 4 is she goes and preaches Jesus. Could not this be the Messiah? And all of the Samaritans who believed said, this indeed is the savior of the world. Savior to the Gentiles. This was always in God's plan. 2000 B.C., God told Abraham, through you will come a great one, the Messiah. And those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. And through you, this great Messiah, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is a promise from God that the salvation of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, would reach to the ends of the earth, even to Gentile peoples. And then Isaiah 49, verse 6, reiterates that all the more, the whole book of Isaiah, that the Messiah will be a Savior to all people, including Gentiles. So that is great news. But then there's some sorrowful news. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed Mary and Joseph, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this was a prophecy. Behold, this child, Messiah, is pointed, appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. That, that is somber. That is ominous. The fall and What? I thought the Messiah was good news. Time to rejoice for the nation of Israel. I mean, some will fall. Some will trip up over this Messiah. Absolutely. The leadership of Israel did. Judas did. And led to his fall. Almost the entire nation of Israel rejected their Messiah at first. The fall and rise of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed. And here's what really hurt. Mary, verse 35, or prepared her soul and a sword will pierce even your own soul, Mary, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary, this was a prophecy before Jesus was even born that Jesus would die a brutal death by the sword. Jesus was pierced with the sword when he was on the cross. He was pierced in his hands and his feet. And so 33 years before it ever happens, God revealed through Simeon to Mary, your child is going gonna to die. And that was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as well, that the Messiah would be great, he'd be glorious, he'd be a king, he would reign forever. But at the same time, somehow, mysteriously, he would also be the suffering servant. Hence Isaiah 53. 
that describes in detail the brutality of the crucifixion of the Messiah in Psalm 22 that the Jews just didn't understand and they didn't want anything to do with it. Yet it had to happen because the Messiah had to die for sinners. It was part of God's plan. It wasn't a a mistake. It wasn't the broken plan of God. It was part of God's plan. He had to die and be the suffering servant. Thank you to Simeon for that message. Anna, number eight, announced that baby Jesus was the redeemer of Jerusalem. Right after Simeon, this older man, is this older woman. Verse 36, Anna, she was a prophetess. In other words, God used her as a vehicle of divine truth. She was a a daughter of Phanuel from a very specific Jewish tribe. She was advanced in years. How advanced? 84 years old, and she had been a widow for several years now. And what did she do now that she was a widow and by herself and didn't have to tend to her husband? She spent all of her time at the temple whenever she could, day after day after day, at the temple, the headquarters of God's people and God's place of worship. And what did she do there? She prayed, she prayed, she prayed incessantly and she prophesied and was used by God. And she happened to be there at the dedication of Jesus. And so she saw Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the Spirit of God prompted her heart and moved Anna to speak about this Messiah. And at verse 38, it says at that very moment she came up and she began giving thanks to God, thanking God for the Messiah, for baby Jesus. As God identified who Jesus was for her, and she continued to speak to God to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. And she, long before John the Baptist was pointing his finger at Jesus saying, the Lamb of God, Anna was doing it 33 years before. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Isn't that amazing? All this, these witnesses at the time of birth in the headquarters of Jerusalem, publicly, testimony after testimony, from a priest like Zechariah and Simeon, respected men of God, and Anna, a prophetess of the Jewish people, pointing out at the time that this is Jesus, He is the Messiah, He is the Savior of the world and of Israel, and that 33 years later that message was totally forgotten by the majority of Jewish people, especially the Jewish leadership. It's amazing. So that's Anna's message. He will be the redeemer of Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem? I thought the Jews lost Jerusalem. Well, they did. And I thought Jerusalem was kind of being taken over today by Muslims and the Palestinians and Gentiles and secularism. Well, it has been. But Jerusalem, the Jews still have a foothold in Jerusalem. They have a corner of it. And according to Scripture, it is still the holy city. It was called the holy city in the Old Testament. It's called the holy city in the day of Jesus and the Gospels. It is called the holy city in Revelation chapter 11 in the future. It is still considered by God the holy city. And if you read Zechariah chapter 12 to 14, it is an amazing prophecy of the future yet to come where God is going to bring all of world history into focus on the city of Jerusalem once again where he culminates all of human history and fulfills all of his promises to the nation of Israel and ultimately brings Jesus Christ in the flesh from heaven down to earth where Jesus lands and reigns from Jerusalem as king of the earth. That is reality and that is yet to come. That is one election you already know the results of. Who will be elected king of the universe in the future yet to come? Jesus. Glorious truth. Thank you, Anna, for that message. And then finally, the Magi. The Magi announced that baby Jesus was the king of the Jews and worthy of worship. And I just want to close with Matthew chapter 2, all the way up to verse 11. The Magi, we talked about this on 
Friday a couple of weeks ago, the story of the Magi, who they were. They were the king makers. They were Gentiles. See, the message of Jesus for all people. And over in Babylon, 500 miles away from Israel, God deliberately goes out of his way supernaturally through divine revelation and a special unique light using scriptures from Daniel to let a whole bunch of Gentile magi know that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, has been born and he leads them 500 miles to the very place, the city of Bethlehem, and even the house in which he would reside at the time of his birth where the magi might come and honor Jesus for who he was, king of the Jews and king of the world. And they brought gifts that were appropriate for such an inauguration or recognition. Expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And so this entourage of these kingmakers who were Gentiles, who believed in the Scriptures, looking for the Messiah, they finally found Him. And when they came into the house, Matthew chapter 2 says this, after coming into the house where Joseph and Mary are, they saw the child, that's baby Jesus, with Mary his mother. And what did they do? They fell to the ground and worshipped Him. That is amazing. These Gentiles knew that Jesus was more than a man. They knew He was Yahweh in the flesh, the God-man, deity worthy of worship. And so they set the example for us. They fell to the ground and they worshipped Jesus. You can imagine Joseph and Mary watching maybe not even having the fullness of the understanding in their mind of who this child is. What a testimony from the Magi that God uses. And then opening up their expensive treasures, they presented to Jesus, baby Jesus, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So Christmas isn't about what we can get and the gifts we can get. Christmas is about the gifts and the adoration and the worship that the Lord Jesus deserves. Amen? And if you know Jesus Christ personally, that's what we get to celebrate this Christmas, that Jesus is indeed the, the glorious, merciful, awesome, perfect Savior of the world. And maybe there's people here, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe this is some of this information, you've heard it for the first time in your life. It's like, wow, really? Jesus is all of those things? I didn't know that. Well, this is what Scripture says about Him. And so maybe this is the day for you. Maybe God wanted you to be here on this day to, to learn this about the fullness of who Jesus Christ truly is and why He came. He came to seek and to save sinners. That was His mission. And He's still on that mission using His church, His people, His gospel, His Holy Spirit, and the prayers of the saints to soften and convict the hearts of sinners that they might come to Lord Jesus asking for His forgiveness of sin, understanding that His death was a substitutionary death on their behalf as God the Father poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross on behalf of sinners. And Jesus willingly accepted that, endured it. He was buried. He rose again. He rose Himself from the dead. He ascended into heaven, back with the Father. And He reigns as King of kings, as Lord of lords, but also as personal Savior for anyone who will come to Him asking for forgiveness of sin, that they might be adopted and accepted into His family. And boy, that would be the greatest Christmas present you will ever receive. If that is your heart's desire, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for this day and our time together in the true meaning of Christmas that You have made so clear in Scripture. We thank You for such a blessed Savior, Lord Jesus. And all of Your attributes, all of Your glories, they are exhaustible. Our minds are finite. Help us to understand these great truths through Your Teacher, the Holy Spirit. Use these great truths to prepare our heart for the Christmas season that will stay focused 
celebrating you, rejoicing in you, thanking you for forgiveness of sin, salvation in this life, and all for eternity. We pray it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.